in our first session, I made the point to say that that I'm not here to talk to you about this subject because I'm some sort of a controversialist. Um, I was really, it was really impressed upon my heart that I should stipulate such a matter because too many times we have controversy without any real point or reason. There are things to fight over and contend for, and there are things that we shouldn't. The Apostle Paul refuted those who made it their habit to seek out controversy Of those, he says, that such a person is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. I'm not here out of a desire to engage in controversy for controversy's sake. I'm here because the idea and concept of prophecy is clearly revealed in scripture and yet it has been made a controversy by the contemporary teaching of fallible prophecy. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to ground our thinking somewhat in texts like 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 because Our ultimate objective must be to herald God's word. If I may borrow the language of one of England's own sons, Mr. Granville Sharp, we are to be about the business of honoring the holy scriptures. Because we uphold the glory of God when we honor the holy scriptures. And so it is my prayer and hope that that will be our ultimate outcome as a result of what we study this morning. Now, in the first section, we talked about the broken foundation of the doctrine of fallible prophecy. And so we looked at the lexical analysis that is presented for fallible prophecy, and we considered the fact that really Grudem presents a secular definition, quoting from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He consulted the more irregular section, the more rare use of the term in that secular section. But really, with all the detail that we considered, we really had a clue as to where we were going as soon as he said, many writings outside the Bible use the word prophet, and then he continued. And he continued on and and drew from a section that deals with Platonic Ideology. All of this is just evidence of the fact that we're drawing from the wrong well in terms of de- de- defining the word prophet. By sweeping away the Bible in order to redefine a core biblical term, Grudem has transformed the office of the prophet from one who was carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak the words of God himself to an artificial secular platonic substitute whose message is entirely fallible and again to use Grudem's own words such a so-called prophet is fairly accurate not infallible not absolutely certain and is worthy of rejection and disobedience because of such fallibility amazingly we are told by the teachers of fallible prophecy and Grudem in particular 
that fallible prophecy, as he says in his systematic theology on page 1057, he says fallible prophecy is a sign of God's hand of blessing on the congregation. And he admits that prophecy actually has less authority than teaching because of all of the corruption and fallibility. And yet, this error-filled gift, supposed gift, is to be sought out according to 1 Corinthians 14. This is quite a maze of thinking. It's really madness when you think about it. If I were to hand you a 100-piece puzzle and I said to you, could you please assemble this 100-piece puzzle, you would think to yourself, well, that's an easy task. 100 pieces, that's pretty quick. You'll be done with it within a matter of minutes, probably. But then I said to you, by the way, I did something to the puzzle. I took 10 pieces out of the puzzle, and I took a knife, and I, I cut them up, and I adjusted them and made them a little bit different in their shape. And so you're going to have to go through and cut the rest of the pieces in the puzzle to match the pieces that I modified. Well, as soon as I say that, you would think I was a madman. And, and as soon as I said that, you would realize that your simple task just became very complicated. In fact, let me just make a, a parenthetical note here. I love preaching the word of God. It's a privilege that exceeds me. What I don't like is expositing the views of another man about the word of God. And so this is a rather laborious task for me but I will say to you as we said in the first session it is a necessary matter that we must confront and understand for the sake of the body of Christ the fact that people are going about and teaching this doctrine uh, spreading this teaching in churches is something that we must understand so we have to get we have to roll up our sleeves and get a little bit dirty and get into the details in order to understand what we're talking about, at least enough so that we can address this matter and help others who are being ensnared by these views. The good news is, is that even though this teaching is ubiquitous and is spreading even throughout conservative churches and seminaries, the good news is, is that we must always come back to this reality of the fact that we have God's sure word. That we don't have to go running around and seeking out a, a fallible prophet so that we can get some error-filled prophecy. By virtue of the word of God, we have real encouragement, real nourishment for the sheep. And we have everything pertaining to life and godliness as we consider together in 2 Peter chapter 1, and that was the context, remember, of what he says in verses 20 and 21 about the absolute veracity of God's prophetic revelation. It is never, he says, never the product of human, the human will. We must remember that and must consider this as well, and I wanted to read this text to encourage our hearts because I really want us to focus on scripture above every other consideration. God has given us his sufficient word and he has given us the gifts necessary for the deliverance of that word. And so the apostle Paul, after describing the sacrifice of Christ who descended and ascended 
And after his great sacrifice and ascension, he gave gifts to the church. And so he describes that gifting to the church where he says that he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's what we have. Why would we run to a fallible prophet ever. But sadly, this is exactly what we have with the contemporary teaching of fallible prophecy. With the teaching of fallible prophecy, we have the exchanging of the surety of God's prophetic word for this artificial substitute. Now, this brings us to the subject of Agabus. Why in the world is Agabus so important to this discussion of fallible prophecy? Well, in short, Agabus is the one prophet who is upheld by the proponents and advocates of fallible prophecy as their sure example of a fallible prophet. And so, Grudem goes goes through great lengths to describe for us how we're to consider how Agabus was in error when he prophesied in Acts 21 and and how the disciples responded to his prophecy and how it is that a a prophet can get some things right and some things wrong and the things that are wrong need to be rejected and the things that are right need to be responded to appropriately. And let me say again, in talking about Agabus, and we're about to get into Agabus in a moment, this is a lengthy, lengthy, lengthy subject And it constitutes 46 pages in my book, so I can really guarantee you that we're really going to be brief with Agabus. But I want to get to the heart of what's taking place with Agabus here um, this afternoon. And what I'd like to do, and just very simply, what I'd like to do, first of all, is just consider the introduction of Agabus in the Bible. We'll consider the scriptural account of Agabus in two occasions, in Acts 11 And then again in Acts 21, we see Agabus prophesying. We'll look at those first. Then we'll consider fallible prophecy's claim of Agabus's error. And with that, we'll consider how scripture vindicates Agabus. Thirdly and finally, and this will be too brief, but we'll consider some of the implications that come when using uh, Agabus as a model for fallible prophecy. So let's go to the first point here. And I, I, again, I'll say this, this the, the subject of Agabus really gets into the, in the, into the weeds of details. And so uh, I would just say, again, the book will be more uh, beneficial to you, but we're going to summarize some of the elements that we see here. 
with respect to Agabus. How do we see Agabus being introduced in the Bible? Well, Luke first introduces us to Agabus in Acts chapter 11 when he was describing the work of God amidst the church at Antioch. Luke mentions that the hand of the Lord was with those who were preaching the gospel. Barnabas was then dispatched from Jerusalem to Antioch to help them in their labors. Needing assistance with with this growing work, Barnabas sought out Saul of Tarsus and brought him to Antioch, and they together ministered there for a year. And as Luke writes, it says that he says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So in Acts chapter 11, in verse 27, we see the following. Luke says, and in these days, prophetai, prophetai, prophets, came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. That's what we have for an introduction to Agabus. He's called a prophet. He gives a prophecy. And it was fulfilled. It's pretty straightforward. And there's no hyphenation in the identity of Agabus as a prophet. He's not identified as a mostly accurate prophet. He's just a prophet, as we would expect. Then we go to Acts chapter 21, and we find in Paul's third missionary journey that Agabus comes on the scene again. Luke says, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. Now that's it. That's the simple scriptural introduction to Agabus. It's not complicated, but where things get complicated is when you enter into the pool of the argument of fallible prophecy where Agabus is accused of being in error. What is the error? Well, the advocates of fallible prophecy will say to you that Agabus got this matter of Paul being arrested in Jerusalem correct. However, the particular details of how he would be arrested are in error. They say that he was not bound by the Jews, but by the Romans, and so that's error number one. And then there's this other matter of the question of him being delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. This, too, is claimed to be an error. Now, Grudem says it this way, and let me, I, I always want to bring you to his argument. I, I don't really want to summarize his argument as much as just give you his argument directly. You're getting it from him now. Grudem says this, He says he, Agabus, would have the general idea correct. Paul would be imprisoned at Jerusalem, but the details somewhat wrong. Agabus' prophecies of binding and giving over by the Jews are explicitly falsified by the subsequent narrative. Now, would you please make a note, if you're taking notes, that when Grudem says the subsequent narrative... 
he is only referring to Acts chapter 21, verses 27 through 35. If you search through his, his systematic theology, that's it. That's the only narrative that he is treating the reader to. But he stops at verse 35 in the 21st chapter of Acts. In a moment, we'll discover why that's a problem. Grudem goes on and says this. He says, I find it hard to reconcile with the Old Testament pattern of precise fulfillment of prophecies. Strictly speaking, Agabus predicted two events which did not come to pass. By Old Testament standards, Agabus would have been condemned as a false prophet because in Acts 21, 27 through 35, neither of his predictions are fulfilled. D.A. Carson, who has joined the arena of advocacy for fallible prophecy, says of Agabus, he says, I can think of no reported Old Testament prophet whose prophecies are so wrong on the details. Now, I think the best way to simplify our study of this is to address these two claims of error. These two claims of error. So we come to the question, did the Jews really bind Paul? And also, how is it that um, he was delivered over to the Gentiles? He if it's not the case that he was delivered over to the Gentiles by the Jews, well, why would that be so? How is that falsified? And I would make a note here that pertaining to that second point, the Greek word paradidomi, which we'll consider a little bit more in a moment, is central to that part of the argument. But as to this first claimed error, let's consider the following. Again, the advocates of fallible prophecy say that, that the Jews did not bind Paul. And the word bind, deo, really just simply means to take two things and bind them together, to tie two objects together. Uh, typically a person who's being handcuffed or they're having their hands tied together, that's the, the idea here of the word deo. The complaint here is that the word deo is never used with reference to Paul's seizure by the Jews in Acts 21.30. Now, concerning this claim of error, there are two basic responses that are typically offered concerning that claim. First of all, most critics of Grudem have pointed out that the Jews may have been um, guilty of binding Paul, not directly, but instrumentally through the Romans who ultimately did the work of binding him. So instead of the Jews being the direct source of binding Paul, it would be that the Romans were the ones doing it, but they were simply uh, instruments of that action. We see that kind of language of instrumentality oftentimes in the scriptures. Peter, when he was preaching in Acts chapter 3, speaking to his Jewish audience, he said of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, he said to them, whom you crucified... So Peter is not saying that a bunch of Jews stepped in and did the, the work of actually physically crucifying Jesus, but he's speaking the, in the language of instrumentality, that they rejected Christ, and yet it was ultimately the Romans who carried out the act. And 
By the way, Grudem offers some measure of concession to the idea of instrumentality, but still finds a way to refute the point. And I would agree with the idea of instrumentality here, but I would also suggest that there's something to be said about another refutation of this claim of error. Um, we find that it may very well be the case, and I think it's likely the case, that the Jews actually did bind Paul. I could take either view, by the way, before I say anything else. I think both views are probably have, have some veracity, at least in terms of logic and reasoning. Both are consistent with the argument of Scripture. But consider the following. When we consider the possibility that Paul may have been directly bound by the Jews, there's a weighty argument for that as well. I say that because when Paul was brought before the governor of Caesarea, Felix in particular, a lawyer by the name of Tertullus testified on behalf of the Jews saying the following. He said, he, Paul, even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. Ekrotesimen, from the Greek word krateo. Now, this isn't the word deo bind, but krateo, arrest, speaks of the idea of laying hands on an individual, seizing them, and arresting them. And it comes from the root word kratos, which speaks of the idea of force, might, or strength. Logically, when you think about the connotation of this term, when someone is seized and arrested, others have to apply an external force of restraint on that individual. And this encompasses the idea of using bonds and restraints. And I have no idea what time I'm into this lecture here. Either that, this is okay. Can, can you give me a... a a sign when I'm at 30 minutes or something? That, that'd be helpful. Okay, thank you. So it's interesting to note that by the testimony of Tertullus, Paul was arrested. He was arrested. Now you say, okay, that doesn't mean he was bound. Well, I guess that's an interesting response. It's an interesting way to respond. Um, but consider the analogy of scripture. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, John indicates that Jesus was arrested and bound. Okay? Arrested and bound. If you go to Matthew and Luke, they indicate that Jesus was arrested, but do not use the word bound. Well, and when you go to Mark, Mark doesn't use either term. He just says that Jesus was led away. Well, now clearly this is a contradiction. And I'm kidding when I say that. Anyone who would suggest this is a contradiction is simply just not paying attention to the idea, the, the broad connotation of these terms. Someone who is arrested is normally bound and as Mark said, is taken away. The idea of being placed in restraints so that you can be taken away is really a part of the overall package of getting arrested. And I think of the 
really in America, I don't know how things are done here, but um, when an individual is being arrested, an officer normally would say you're being placed under arrest and the first thing that they do is place handcuffs on you and read you your Miranda rights. Well, you have the same kind of connotation here with all of these terms. The fact that Mark just says that Jesus was led away doesn't mean that he wasn't arrested and bound. Okay? Um, The fact that uh, uh, Matthew and Luke don't use the word bound doesn't mean he wasn't bound. All these different accounts are really pointing to the same events, and all of these terms are really being used in a synonymous way to speak of the idea of a person being restrained and taken away under legal authority. In fact, a similar example of this by the analogy of Scripture is this, is that Saul, before his conversion, is said to have had authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon the name of Jesus in Acts 9 and verse 2. Ananias, when testifying about Saul, he said that Saul had authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on the name of Christ. But in Acts 8.3, the use of the word, the, the word bound is not found. It just says that Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. See, all these terms, binding, dragging, arresting, uh, seizing, taking away, all of these terms are speaking in the same domain and connotation and idea of taking someone, applying force to them, and taking them away under legal authority. It is here that I would have to say that Grudem is really trying to strain more out of the language than is really there. And I think that the reason why Grudem really doesn't spend a lot of time on that aspect of the argument is because I think he knows it's a fairly weak argument. He he spends more paper and ink trying to justify the argument of Paul not being delivered over to the Gentiles. And so this gets us to the second error. The second error has to do with this Greek word, patadidomi. And the argument is, is that the Jews did not deliver Paul to the Gentiles in that they did not volitionally or willingly hand him over, but that he was snatched out of their hands, taken from them against their will, And Grudem says that's a violation of the meaning of the word patadidomi. Now, again, as I've said before, I go into a lot more detail regarding these matters um, in written form. But those who have responded to Grudem at this point will typically point out that this is, again, a straining out of too much of a meaning out of a term. In fact, uh, Thomas Edgar, if you've not ever read his book, I would encourage you to to secure a copy of it. I don't even know if it's still in print, but um, it's called Satisfied by the Promise of the Spirit. And uh, he addresses this matter uh, very well, I think. Um, I actually contacted uh, uh, Thomas Edgar about this and asked him his views on this, and and he wrote back and said the following. He said, Potididomi 
describes an act where the subject, one party, has custody or possession of someone or something and hands it over into the custody of another party. It has nothing to do with the attitude of the subject involved. Now, in general, I agree with his point and would say that it's probably the case that Grudem is straining out too much of a definition out of this term. But having gone through the multiple uses of the word potadidomi, both in the New Testament and in the Septuagint, um, I wanted to give him at least the benefit of the doubt and say, well, okay, if, if willingness, if volition is so necessary in this term, is it, is it really the case that the Jews never really surrendered Paul at some level with some measure of volition? Now, in order to address this, we really need to think about what happened um, with respect to Paul. First of all, we need to think about the nature of his arrest in Jerusalem And secondly, we need to think a little bit about the reality of Roman law. First of all, what happened in Jerusalem is this. Paul was seized once by the Jews, but three times by the Romans. Not once, but three times by the Romans. Twice, Paul was allowed to respond to his accusers, the Jews, but he was interrupted both times. Now, everything I've just stipulated, and I'm summarizing, but I am going outside of the bounds of Grudem's section where he, he only addresses Paul's arrest, his first arrest, when in Jerusalem. And he stops at verse 35, at Paul's initial seizure by the Jews and then by the Romans. But then that's it. He terminates the discussion. Another thing we need to put in our brains before we think about this whole matter of Agabus and the question of potadidomi, and that is this. The reality of Roman law required that only the Romans would be able to carry out capital punishment. The Jews had no legal right or authority to carry out an execution. If they did, they were breaking Roman law. And so when the Jewish leaders sought Jesus' condemnation, Pilate made the offer to the Jews to take him, judge him according to their law. But they responded and said, correctly they said, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. That's in John 18.31. And that's why you see that the initial complaints against Jesus over theological issues then changed and transformed into complaints about uh, his telling people not to pay taxes and promoting riots and not honoring and obeying Caesar. And suddenly, all of a sudden, the Jews are now interested in obeying Caesar. Well, they were only doing that because they knew that if they could make Jesus guilty of those things, they could actually have him crucified by Roman hands. Another thing that we need to think about concerning the Roman judicial system is this. All those who are arrested must face their accusers. Festus, the procurator of Judea, rightly says in Acts 25 and verse 16, 
He says it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accuser face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. Now this is important because the Roman soldiers who seized Paul repeatedly tried to give Paul an opportunity to face his accusers. And every effort made by Paul to face his accusers and offer his testimony was thwarted by the Jews. And every time the Jews thwarted that legal process, they were embedding Paul more and more deeply into the hands of the Romans who held him. This is why Grudem's limited timeline, his only, his presenting only Acts 21, 27 through 25, 35, excuse me, is very limited and it is very uh, much a truncation of the entire narrative that we need in order to examine this question about the fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy. So briefly, if you have your Bibles and are open up to Acts 21, I'll summarize it here. In Acts 21, verses 27 through 30, Paul is arrested by the Jews. Then we see that Paul is seized and arrested by the Romans and allowed to face his accusers and testify. At this point, we've exited the domain of scriptures, the the domain of verses that Grudem suggests that we should only look at. Because now we're going beyond verse 35. Because Paul begins his testimony, but is violently interrupted once he mentioned Jesus calling him to, to minister to the Gentiles. And we read that in Acts 22, verses 1 through 21. It's at this time in verse 22 that the Jews responded, they erupted and responded and said, They raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now this sentiment is repeated by the Roman commander who heard these words and understood, he clearly understood that this is a request to have Paul executed. And in a sense, in this moment, we see the Jews really volitionally saying, take him, take him, away with him. He doesn't deserve to live. Why would they surrender in this moment? Because they knew what every Jew understood, and that is this, they didn't have the right to kill him. The only way that they could try to do it is if they could do it in stealth away from the watchful eye of Roman legal authorities. But they already lost that chance. And so having lost that chance, they then gave him, they then gave him over to Roman legal authorities for them to carry out the same, the very, the very task that they themselves could not do. By the way, this is so very similar to how Jesus was seized and arrested, and finally the Jews just said, crucify him. And they even echoed the same language of away with him, away with him, take him, take him. 
It is commonly held that Paul was executed while in Rome in the mid-60s AD under the rule of Nero, which means that in the end the Jews got what they ultimately sought, Paul's execution by Roman hands per their appeal in Acts 22 and verse 22. Now, let me add the following. What I've just stipulated to you here, based upon the testimony of the scriptures, is really an agreement with what Paul says himself when he speaks to prominent Jews in Rome. In Acts chapter 28, Paul says this, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was, and here's the term, me. I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Paul is really basically repeating the very substance of what Agabus prophesied. Now, Grudem's response, this is where we have to get into the weeds, Grudem's response is to say, well, you know, he's just talking about when he was delivered from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Caesarea. The problem is, is that the hands of the Romans is a different reference. It's not a city. Um, If you're going to say hands of the Romans here, as the text says, uh, the Romans were everywhere. They weren't just in Caesarea. They were everywhere. So saying that Caesarea means the hands of the Romans, um, he was in the hands of the Romans all the way back in Jerusalem. And that's the important point. That's why I spent a lot of time going through the standards of Roman law. As soon as Paul was arrested by the Romans, they had legal authority over him. And so in Jerusalem, that act of him being delivered over to the Roman legal authorities already took place. And when they gave him up, verbally gave him up in Acts 22:22, that sealed the deal, we could say. So Paul even affirms the prophecy of Agabus. Now, what are the implications of this? I would suggest to you that we really have a case of an individual straining out a gnat of an imagined error in order to swallow the camel of fallible prophecy. We have two key problems with this view, the testimony of scripture itself and church history. We also have the problem of the oddity of Agabus as a fallible prophet, as some sort of a model to glean from. And so the first problem that I've suggested, I've already mentioned, is this, is that if there was a problem with Agabus and his prophecy, we would expect to see that exposed in Scripture. Some sort of a refutation. The Scriptures uphold the idea of exposing and refuting error. And yet, are we supposed to imagine that Scripture is somehow silent from, about someone who is called a prophet who offers up a prophecy about Paul? No, what we have is, is Luke calling Agabus a prophet not once, but twice. 
And as he was writing from hindsight from the event, he could have modified his description of Agabus if he thought he needed to based upon the prophecy of Agabus and the outcome. And so we don't see Luke referring to Agabus as a mostly accurate, not infallible, without absolute certainty, worthy of rejection and disobedience prophet. Besides, that's just too busy to say anyway, right? You also have the problem of church church history. 2,000 years of church history, and suddenly we find that there's a problem with Agabus. Church history doesn't share this view. John Chrysostom compares Agabus to Ezekiel in terms of the veracity of his prophecy. Augustine affirms the predictive reality of Agabus's prophecy, Ambrose of Milan and Cyril of Jerusalem, and there are others. Again, you have 2,000 years of of church history, scriptural exegesis, spirit-filled teachers who somehow miss this, we're supposed to believe. And yet now we have the the advocates of fallible prophecy now rescuing us from this apparent misunderstanding of the Bible that no one has seen for 2,000 years. That's more than odd. It's disturbing. Then we have this to consider. When we look at Agabus as a model for fallible prophecy... We must remember that he is the most central, explicit example of the New Testament prophet. And if the advocates of fallible prophecy applied his example consistently in view of their own interpretations, then no prophecy would ever need to be obeyed in view of the presence of human error. By the central example of Agabus, one must wonder why such prophecy should be sought out by the church at all. A number of years ago, a family member of mine um, went to go see a seer and was given a prophecy about me. And the prophecy was that something really traumatic was going to happen to me when I turned 40. I can't remember anything traumatic happening to me when I turned 40, except that I turned 40. At that time, it seemed traumatic. I'd like to be 40 again at this point, but, uh, but I remember that relative who was so caught up by this prophecy, worried about it, anxious about it. And then my 40th birthday came and went and... You know, as a Christian, I didn't think much about it. It was a big, fat nothing burger, except for the nice birthday celebration that I had. But when I think about the anxiety that people suffered over that, the, the, the sense of concern over what's going to happen, what a waste of time. How was any of this edifying? How is any of this going to give people hope? And by the way, it is a violation of James chapter 4, where James calls it evil for us to presume even upon tomorrow, 
let alone a birthday that's off in the distance, right? You don't even have the guarantee of tomorrow, so why worry about a future birthday? There's so many layers to this matter. But the advocates of fallible prophecy would tell us, yes, it has less authority than a teacher, but you must consider it as a blessing from God and seek it out, according to 1 Corinthians 14. I say no. And I agree with Dr. Robert Thomas, Thomas, who says of those who accuse Agabus of error, he, he says this, he, Grudem, is accusing not only Agabus of error, Grudem is making the same accusation against the Holy Spirit. This is serious. Claiming error in a prophet is a serious matter, and we ought to take it seriously. So there is much more to be said about this and that the pastor's fraternal will actually go into more of the applications of this and consider the way in which this really produces a burden upon the people of God to worry about these fake and false prophecies, which no one should worry about for one second, especially since we have the sure word of God. And that's what we need to cling to.